Good morning. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we turn again now to your word. And we ask that you, through the Holy Spirit, will speak to us and teach us more today. Help us, Father, to put other thoughts aside and to concentrate on your word. Open our eyes to see. Open our minds to understand. And Father, open our hearts to hide away your word that we might put it into practice day by day. And now let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The paragraph heading for the passage that was read to us today is wisdom from above. This is heavenly wisdom. Godly wisdom. J.B. Phillips has given us a paraphrase of the New Testament that is both refreshing and I find stimulating. And in it, in his paraphrase, he has given us a definition of wisdom, of godly wisdom. And his definition is this. Wisdom is seeing things from God's point of view. Wisdom is seeing things from God's point of view. And let's make no mistake about it. God has a point of view about how he wants us to live as Christians in the world today. And the Bible is chock-a-block full of God's point of view. But the big trouble is that the vast majority of us Christians simply do not read the Bible, meditate on it, study it, to find out God's point of view. We all need to go back to Joshua 1.8 and do it exactly as God told Joshua to do. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Yes, then we will have wisdom. Wisdom from above. Godly wisdom, seeing things from God's point of view. And then as we apply God's point of view about all kinds of life issues in, our, in all areas of our lives, This has always been God's desire for man from the very beginning when he first created man. You'll all remember the story of Adam and Eve. God placed them in the Garden of Eden. And Genesis 2, 16 and 17 tells us, God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Verse 9 of the same chapter tells us, there was also the tree of life, 
there in the midst of the garden as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was no prohibition to eat from the tree of life. It was God's plan, ever God's plan, for man to have life to the full, eternal life, sharing his own life. But there was the prohibition on eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God planned from the beginning that he was the one who would determine what was good for man and what was evil. God has a point of view that was to be accepted and adopted by man. But in the next chapter we read where Adam had other ideas. When he saw and realized what eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil could mean, he saw that he could decide for himself what was good for his life, how he would live it, and what was evil not to do it. He could make his own decisions. He could forget God's point of view of things and decide his own. And that's exactly what he did. He adopted his own point of view and he ate of the fruit of that tree. He threw wisdom to the wind and went his own way. In fact, he rejected God's point of view and determined to go his own way, deciding for himself what was good for him to do and what wasn't. He disobeyed God completely by determining to make his own decisions. And so sin entered the world and has been here ever since with every person born into the world having the same determination to live life his own way and not from God's point of view for him or her. God had said death would result and it did. Death of the spirit. At that moment, Adam's spirit died. As a human being with body and soul, he continued to live. But his spirit had died. He was cut off from God. And he could not enjoy eternal life from then on and be allowed to continue to eat from the tree of life. So we see in Genesis 3.24 that God drove out the man. And at the east end of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And all because man, Adam, had rejected God's point of view about how he should live his life, doing only what God determined was good for him. But now let's look at King Solomon. In the early years in his early years as king of Israel. We read in 1 Kings 3 and verse 5 that at Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon replied in verse 9, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern your great people? So what was it that King Solomon actually asked for? 
He asked for a mind that would accept from God what he decided was good for him and what was evil for him by the way of the government of the people. He wanted an understanding mind to understand how God wanted him to rule the Israelites. In other words, he was asking God to show him, Solomon, God's point of view in the matter of government. He was, in fact, asking what God always wanted of man, what Adam had rejected. His father David had been described as a man after God's own heart. But here was his son Solomon asking for the very thing that God wanted from man right from the very beginning. A man to accept his, God's point of view of is- about issues. And as a result, what happened? God got terribly excited. Read what God said. Verses 10 to 13 of the chapter. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, in other words, God's point of view, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honour, so that no other king shall compare with you all your your days. Wow. God was so excited to find someone who wanted exactly what he wanted for man. And so he gave him extra gave him long life and riches and honour never seen before or since. Solomon's name always brings up in people's mind the idea of utter wisdom. And it truly was. Simply because he wanted God's point of view to be relayed to him so that he could govern his people well. And as well, let's look at the life of our Lord when he was here on earth. We don't know much at all about the early life of Jesus as he grew up with his earthly parents and how he lived then. But we do know that right at the beginning of his ministry, when he was baptised by John, that the Father expressed his delight in him. Matthew three sixteen and 17 tells us, And when Jesus was baptised, immediately... He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, my Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. From what we know of him during his ministry, we can well conclude that all through his earthly life he accepted from the Father how he was to will, how he was to live and act and behave. And this resulted in the Father's accolade at his baptism. But during his ministry, we do know 
how he relied on all that the father wanted. Let's see what the Lord had to say on a number of occasions as John recorded them. Chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Chapter 5, 19, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 30 of the same chapter, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Then chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter 7, verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In verse 18, the one who speaks in his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Chapter 8 and verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Verses 28 and 29. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing him. Chapter 12, 49 and 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment, Jesus said, is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And Paul, in Romans 15 and verse 3, wrote that Christ did not please himself. And so again, towards the close of the Lord's ministry, the, the Father spoke once more. Matthew 17 and verse 5, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, my Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And Peter recorded later how he had heard this said. Second Peter 1, 17 and 18, Peter wrote, for when Jesus Christ received honour and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my Son, my Beloved, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Why was the Father so excited that he said this to those who were there at the time? 
One reason was because Jesus Christ, when he became man as well, lived exactly the way God had wanted Adam to live. Totally dependent on him, God. Jesus Christ became wisdom personified as he fulfilled to the nth degree the wisdom that God spoke of in the Garden of Eden. So he was able to restore what Adam had lost. Wisdom is looking at things from God's point of view, which is exactly how Jesus lived here on earth, doing absolutely nothing of himself, getting all his opinions as man from God the Father. This is wisdom from above. And this is the wisdom that James was talking about in this passage that we're looking at this morning. And as we take a closer look at the passage, remember this definition of wisdom. James, a half-brother of the Lord Jesus, was brought up steeped in Jewish history, steeped in the law. And so he was steeped in all the Old Testament had to say about wisdom. For example, Proverbs 1.7 and also 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. With the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Or as the New International Version puts it, reverence for the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This surely implies doing what the Holy One wants, not wanting to displease him in any way, living the kind of life he wants us to live, standing in utter awe of him. This is wisdom. Proverbs 14, 33 Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding who understands the ways of God, including what God asks for us. Including what God asks of us, sorry. Indeed, the Old Testament sees wisdom as a way of life, a life to be lived in meekness and humility. Wisdom has far more to do with the way we live than with the way we think or speak. Moo, in the, in the Tyndale series of commentaries, says very strongly that James speaks of wisdom in virtually the same way that Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, something which our Lord himself taught as well. In John fourteen sixteen, our Lord said, that he would ask the Father for a paraclete, an advocate, to be with us forever. And my dictionary tells me that an advocate is someone who pleads the cause of someone else or someone who espouses the cause of another. And Jesus taught us the Holy Spirit is this advocate. Whose cause does he plead? Whose cause does the Holy Spirit espouse? And to whom does he do this? Well, of course, it is the cause of our Lord Jesus Christ that he espouses. It is Jesus Christ's cause that he pleads for. In John fourteen twenty six, the Lord said the Holy Spirit would teach us all things and bring to our remembrance all that he, the Lord, had said. And then in John 16, verse 14, the Lord added, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
So it is the Lord Jesus' cause that the Holy Spirit espouses to us, pleading Jesus' cause with us. And what did Paul write of the Holy Spirit? In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3 he wrote, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 he wrote, Through sanctification by the Spirit. And in the earlier passage, Paul went on to describe how we need to live our lives in order to please God. Sanctification is a process by which the Holy Spirit, over time, makes us more and more like the Lord Jesus. This is as he works in us, conforming us more and more to what God wants of us to be like Jesus Christ. Indeed, it was what Paul prayed for as well. As he told the Galatians, he was praying for them till Christ be formed in them. Galatians 4.19 This work of sanctification by the Holy Spirit was also mentioned by Peter in 1 Peter 1.2 The Holy Spirit's consuming passion is to see us become more and more like Jesus Christ. And we saw how he lived on earth, completely dependent on the Father, relying on the Father to show him the way to live, seeing everything from God's point of view. And this is exactly what James sees wisdom doing in us. And let's remember that this is what God always intended for us, as we read in Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's original and still current plan is for us Christians, like his Son, Jesus Christ, to seek and hold to his point of view on things. And this is exactly how James sees wisdom. All we've been talking about today has been godly wisdom. James reminds us that there is another kind of wisdom, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It is completely opposed to godly wisdom, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, full of good fruits, impartial and sincere we can see the difference between the two in quite a number of current issues before us today. What a litigious society we live in. On TV we see firms, law firms, vying for business, telling us that they will fight for us to get our rights. Earthly wisdom. On the other hand, we see God's way of doing things, to forgive. Mark 11, 25 and 26, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your sins. And Paul Paul had to write an even more pointed word to Christians in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, 6 and 7. 
one brother goes to law against another. And this in front of unbelievers. The very fact, Paul wrote, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have completely, you're completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged, he asked. Why not rather be cheated? The truly wise man accepts God's point of view and will be known for his godly wisdom. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? This infers earthly wisdom welcomed by most of the world. And yet how many who claim to be believers do join in partnership, in marriage or in business with unbelievers. And so very often, very sadly, and often painfully, live to regret the partnership. Godly wisdom from above makes all the difference in partnerships of any kind. These days, earthly wisdom advises that children be brought up simply to be themselves doing their own thing, acting out what seems right and best to them. Obedience is not seen as a desirable quality to have at all. And worldly value systems are taught to be wholly advantageous. Wisdom from above suggests a totally different way of bringing up children. Love and discipline are so often missing in children's upbringing these days. But heavenly wisdom speaks differently. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. And then, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is God's point of view, and it is wisdom from above to follow it. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 14 also reminds us, let all that you do be done in love. And that wonderful love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, reminds us that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Heavenly wisdom, God's point of view, wants us to live lives of love 
so absolutely contrary to the world's point of view all around us with its unspiritual demonic wisdom. Earthly wisdom strongly emphasizes materialism. The TV screen keeps telling us of all the really of all the things that we really can't live without and we must have them. Keeping up with the Joneses is a dominant way of life. And Christians at times do seem to get taken in by all the advertising. There is a very strong sense of selfishness in it all as well. But what does heavenly wisdom from above tell us? What is God's point of view here? Matthew 6.33 was spoken by the Lord to his disciples. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Heavenly wisdom also tells us how to spend our money wisely in this world. Luke 16.9 And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Then what are very current issues before us every day on TV and in the newspapers and so on? The topic of the redefining of marriage. This, of course, is all intertwined with the matter of homosexuality and gay marriage. One by one, politicians seem to give in to pressure from friends, relations, colleagues and seem to be ready to redefine marriage and family. And tragically, there are many in the churches who openly go along with the crowd in this matter. It started with compromise in accepting homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle. But from there it has escalated with no reference whatever to God's point of view, no reference whatever to wisdom from above, pure and undefiled. How sad when proponents of redefining marriage with all its implications are given full time to air their views. But those standing up for God's point of view are denied it. God introduced marriage into the world with Adam and Eve and he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Hebrews 13 and verse 3 reminds us that God has said, Let marriage be held in honour among all. Even though we wouldn't practice what the world teaches, we must also accept that its wisdom is totally wrong, totally opposed to God's point of view. And true wisdom is to see things entirely from God's point of view. And we could go on and on during the distinction between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. The Bible is full of God's point of view about all kinds of issues of life. But as we said earlier, at the very beginning, the major problem is that Christians don't bother to read and study God's word very much to find out God's point of view about issues. And as we've heard a few times from this pulpit recently, even when many Christians do bother to read God's word, it's largely a matter of just moving the bookmark forward a page or two. 
rather than taking in what God has said to us. Oh, that we might all revert to what God said to Joshua as we read at the beginning. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then we will learn more and more what God's point of view is about many, many things. And we will experience more and more heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above. As I close, just let me read the words of an old hymn. May the mind of Christ our Saviour live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through his power. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. Amen.